If you are here um, for the first time, you've come um, towards the end of a lengthy series that we've been working through one of Paul's letters. The Apostle Paul, great apostle um, in the New Testament era who preached about Jesus, went from place to place, town to town, village to village, city to city, talking about Jesus and starting new churches. One of those churches was in a place called Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. And uh, having been away from that church for some years, he wrote them a letter. That letter is a distilled, concentrated um, version of the kinds of things that he would have taught with them face to face. And so as Christians, our calling and duty is to seek to then unfold what's packed in there in dense form. And so it takes a while to grapple with and understand um, some of the New Testament letters, but they reward careful attention and focus. And so we've been spending some time working through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, one of the most important documents actually in history for the impact that it's had. And uh, much of it has been preoccupied with a vision of what the church of Jesus Christ is. But towards the second half of the letter, his attention has been on a call or an exhortation to Christians to live different lives. Part of what it means to be a follower of Christ is a call to distinctiveness, not for its own sake, but rather because, as he puts it here, we're called to imitate God. And therefore, belonging to him necessitates certain radical life changes, transformations that take place primarily on the inside, but then also work their way out in terms of how you live and act and behave in this world as a way of seeking to walk in the pathway of the master who saved us and the pathway of Jesus, to be a disciple. That's what it means. And so we've been thinking about some of these things, and recently we've looked at this fifth chapter, chapter 5, and I want to read to you from verse 18 to 21. So if you have a Bible, open it there, and I'm going to read to you these few verses. He says this, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I want to say a brief prayer. Father, we ask you, that as we are wrestling with and being impacted by your word, that your, we pray that your Holy Spirit will bring about change within us. Speak to every person here. In Jesus' name, amen. There is something strange about this particular passage that we're looking at this evening. I think the central idea that Paul is articulating is relatively obvious and clear in that he is calling for Christians to be people in whom the Spirit of God lives and dwells in a way that consumes and fills and takes over your entire life. And so that part is relatively understandable, and we're going to seek to unpack a little bit more of that later on. But he does something unusual in that he begins opening up this idea of what it means to be full of God and full of God's presence by talking about the danger of, uh, of the effects of alcohol upon the life of, of, of an individual's lives, that they can become, as he puts it, debauched on account of this. And uh, you might wonder, as many have wondered, why does he associate these two things together? Why is the flow of his logic uh, running in this direction? 
And I want to just quickly answer that question because I think it will help shed light on everything that we're going to be explaining and exploring this evening. There are a couple of reasons why he talks about the danger of alcohol to these Christians. One of them is because you went with us, if you went with us last week, let me just quickly summarize that he has just challenged these believers to living wise lives. He charged them not to be foolish, but to be wise people. And by which he meant, and what he specifies there, is the need to acknowledge that our time here on earth is short. And therefore, the essence of wisdom, to, to borrow a phrase from the Psalms, is that God might teach us to number our days so that we can get a heart of wisdom. In other words, there is a great risk in life that you can waste your life if it is not guided by wisdom. And wisdom is understanding that your time here on earth is limited, it is finite. And with this theme of wisdom sort of rattling around in his mind, you have to remember the Apostle Paul was a man steeped in the Hebrew scriptures that he had been reading since he was a tiny boy. And when you open up sections of the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, one of the themes you discover there is the wisdom literature. And within the wisdom literature, there is this warning that keeps being sounded against the dangers of alcohol as a way of destroying a person and also of wrecking your life and wasting your life. In so many ways, the, the, the things seem to come together. The summons to living a wise life and the danger that's sort of exemplified in the person whose life gets taken over by alcohol as a tragedy, a waste of potential, the suppression of gifting, and the, the squandering of time and talent and all of those things. And the scriptures talk about this quite emphatically. But the real reason, I think, the main reason why these two ideas are linked together, being full of God, full of the Spirit of God, and being wary of the danger of alcohol is because there is some kind of similarity between these two realities, a kind of contrasting similarity, if I can put it like that. Think about what alcohol can and does do to people. It has the potential to, to influence your life in profound ways. At a minimum, if you drink alcohol, you do so because it affects you. It affects your behavior. It affects your feelings. It affects your personality. It does things to you. It affects changes within you, which is why people enjoy it. But if that's what it does at a minimum, when you extend that to the examples of people who've been, whose lives have been really taken over by it, you realize that alcohol has the potential to take over completely and to destroy and wreck your life entirely. And so, in a sense, alcohol becomes a kind of a dark mirror to the theme that he really wants us to think about, which is the wondrous power of God when he lives and dwells within you as a Christian and begins to bring about the flourishing that God can bring within your heart, the changes that take place within your soul, and the enhancement of your gifts and of your person so that you can bring change to the world in accordance to God's will. So these two things are a kind of opposite in a sense. An, an external power entering into your system and changing you, either for worse or for better, 
And so this is why I think he, he marries these two ideas together. And so what we're going to be doing as we just unpack these verses is firstly just trying to, to, to understand better the resolve that he sets up here against the danger of a life that's taken over by alcohol or anything else, in fact, that can ultimately wreck you in order that we can more passionately run after God. And so our real hope and desire this evening is to awaken up hunger within our souls, that we will be God chasers, those who pursue him and desire him and want him and seek him and long to be filled with him. That's where we're going. I want to begin with the negative here. How he says quite emphatically, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Now, if you've just walked in, maybe this is one of the first times you've been in a church, um, you may feel that this confirms everything that you had previously thought about Christians, that we are only interested in um, issuing diktats against having fun. And I want to be clear that the Bible is actually not anti-alcohol that it is placed alongside so many of the good gifts that God has given to us as a means for us to better enjoy the grace of God. And alcohol is one of those good gifts. In recent weeks, we've been looking at the gift of time and the the nature of your, your limited time on earth and therefore treasuring it and using it wisely. We've also looked at the gift of sex and the need to Um, cherish it as something holy and and almost revere its power so that we handle it carefully and according to scriptural um, guidelines. And so all these things are good gifts, but like all of God's good gifts, they can be distorted and and damaged, and they can lead to destruction if they're misused. So alcohol, you see it in both ways in the scripture. You see on the one hand, um, actual invitations to... um, to enjoying alcohol to the glory of God. You see in Deuteronomy 14, for example, in one of the, the instructions around festivity, that the Israelites were, in, were commanded and called to purchase um, good things, including drink, in order to have a wonderful time feasting and celebrating God's goodness. Can you already read it for yourself in Deuteronomy 14? You see this in the ministry of Jesus. John chapter 2, he's at a wedding. Weddings lasted many days. And the hosts who must have extended themselves to the maximum in terms of their ability to provide for their children getting married had run out of alcohol. And to the great shame of the hosts, um, they, they might, or at least to the avoidance of shame, I should rather say, Jesus intervenes and supplies a miraculous supply of wine, which, of course, is a symbol of his desire to fill our lives with joy. That he is really the one who wants to to give you lasting satisfaction, happiness, and joy. It's a symbol of that, of the kingdom of God. And so I want to be clear at the outset that what he's doing here, Paul, when he says don't get drunk on wine, is he's he's not saying that this is something evil in and of itself. But like all of God's good gifts, they become a problem when you begin to want it too much, rely on it too much, depend upon it too much. And that's true not only of alcohol, but of any created thing. If you want something too much, you rely on it too much, you depend upon it too much, you're you're putting a weight upon something that it cannot bear, ultimately. And that therefore you collapse, your life collapses, seeking to lean upon and rely upon something which cannot bear that kind of weight. Only God can. 
I want to ask you the question, though, why does he single out drunkenness in particular as a means of sort of setting up his theme of the need to be intoxicated with God? And I think you can think about this in terms of the roots of drunkenness and the fruit of it as this kind of we explore this dark mirror. Think of the root, first of all. What is it that would lead you or lead others to an overindulgence in alcohol or in any other substance for that matter? And I think the answer is pretty obvious to us, isn't it? It's generally speaking an expression of a need for escape, a need for solace, a need for happiness. Our lives are constantly fraught and surrounded by concerns and cares, weighed down with anxieties and frequently facing suffering. The older you get, the more it seems that you'll face these kinds of things. And in an effort to grasp at happiness, in an effort to find peace for the soul, we turn to all kinds of things in order to just bring us temporary balm to soothe our souls. Alcohol is one of those things. And of course, if that is what drives us there, you know, if you are a follower of Christ, I want you to consider this for a second. You must be aware that Jesus wants to be the answer to your soul's needs. And all our deepest desires are to be met in him. It is not that we necessarily shun the good gifts that he's given us as a means of, of enjoying him. But when they supplant him, when we indulge in things that actually take his place in our heart, that is when we begin to realize that there is a deficiency in our relationship with Jesus, that we knee-jerk or reflex to finding other sources of solace and satisfaction and peace other than Jesus. And therefore, the root of the issue of drunkenness is always, as it is with any other form of pleasure-seeking that has the power to take over your life, the root of it is that you are going to this thing for the kind of joy, the kind of peace, the kind of satisfaction that Jesus alone wants to give to you. And then if that's the root of it, Think then about the fruit in your life and what it can produce, what it can do to you, what it can, what it can manifest when you, your life is given over to alcohol or to any other sort of indulgence, hedonistic pleasure of this kind. Of course, it leads to a temporary happiness. Otherwise, people wouldn't enjoy it. They wouldn't do it. At least a temporary enjoyment. But ultimately, ultimately, like any other created thing, when it's when it's twisted into something that ultimate, something that, that, that we need above all else, something that we cannot do without, it begins to distort and crush and twist and break your humanity. I want to read to you a, a wonderful explanation by a preacher from the last century called uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a medical doctor and then a preacher. And this is what he said when he was commenting on this. He said, wine or alcohol pharmacologically speaking, is not a stimulant, it is a depressant. Take up any book on pharmacology and look up alcohol and you'll find always that it's classified among the depressants. It's not a stimulus. Well, you say, why do people drink alcohol in order to receive a, a stimulus? 
He says, what alcohol does is this. It knocks out those higher centers. And so the more primitive elements in the brain come up and take control. And a man feels better temporarily. He has lost his sense of fear. He has lost his discrimination. He's lost his power to assess. Alcohol merely knocks out his higher centers and releases the more instinctive, primal elements. But the man believes that he is being stimulated. What is really true of him is that he has become more of an animal. His control over himself is diminished. This is what the Bible shows us time and time again. That anything that takes the place of God in life and becomes a kind of idol, something that we need and worship and, and depend upon instead of the Lord Jesus Christ, it will have this, ultimately, this suffocating, depressing effect upon you as a person. And it'll begin to dismantle you from the inside out. Alcohol does that in a very visible and obvious way. Because as Lloyd-Jones put it, it suppresses the higher functions of your brain. It reduces your ability to discern and to exercise self-control and to make good and rational decisions. And instead, you become more animal-like. This is why he... Paul describes it here as being drunk on wine, which, which is debauchery. And what it means there is the kind of fragmenting and the falling apart of your person, of who you are as a person. It's the same word Jesus uses when he's describing the life of the prodigal son. If you know the parable, the story of the young brother who runs off with his inheritance and begins to spend it on wild living and describes the, the dissolving and fragmentation of his life in this form of debauchery. Of course, all created things ultimately have the potential to do this to us when we depend on them too much. And so we're beginning to understand what Paul means here when he's drawing out this contrast between wine as a created thing, a substance, a gift of God, but which has this destructive capacity and the need instead for your humanity, for your health, for your wholeness, for your healing to be filled with the presence of God. And how the one and the other are almost a perfect mirror in contrast to each other. Think for, for a second about the fruit of the Spirit, as it's described in one of Paul's other letters. He said that when the Holy Spirit is in a person and they're walking with God and God is beginning to shape them, to form them in his likeness, he describes the work of the Spirit as producing things like this. He says it produces love and joy and peace and patience and goodness, and kindness, and gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control. In other words, you become the best version of who you are called to be, full of grace, full of kindness, with extraordinary self-mastery. This is what God wants to do in you. And what does alcohol do? It does the very opposite of those things. It wrecks you, and breaks you, and makes you make stupid and foolish decisions, and ultimately brings about this kind of depressing version of your humanity. Of course, it's something that I've seen too many times in my life, but I remember a certain season in life when a, a group of my friends who had seemed to demonstrate a real love for Jesus and seemed to be genuinely followers of Christ, together en masse began to drink too much, and it became the first step in a spiral away from God for them. And uh, I can think of a number of them who've been in a spiritual wilderness ever since, and I'm talking about 20 to 25 years now. And it all began because of the, the way that this, this dark mirror, this, this 
counterfeit to the work of God began to destroy them and cause them to make stupid and foolish and irrational decisions that ultimately spiraled them into darker places, spiritually speaking. And of course, this is a danger always. If it's not alcohol, it's something else. Paul says elsewhere in one of his letters, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And that's a good verse to remember as a Christian. Anything which is beginning to master you and take over your life and control you and dominate you ultimately will destroy you if it isn't God. So this is the negative backdrop, and it helps us understand better than what he's calling us to pursue. Let's think about the positives, and this is where he starts. He says, don't get drunk with wine, which for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, as Christians, we believe that our God is one person, one, one God in three persons. We call this the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the breath of God, the presence of God, who, is, who comes to fill us as His people. And you see the work of the Holy Spirit all the way through Scriptures. But you have to understand a couple of things here in order to grasp what Paul is calling Christians to. When you see the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, you see His work in a more, um, I think, a sparing way. That there are fewer people who seem to enjoy His presence in its fullness and who are described as being full of the Holy Spirit. There are unique individuals, but they're rarer. And you see examples like there's a man in Exodus 31 who's called Bezalel. And God says that he's full of the Holy Spirit for craftsmanship. He's an artist and a craftsman. And his, he has the Holy Spirit in him to enhance his natural gifts in order to be extraordinarily gifted in, such a, um, in his, the manual labor and, and craftsmanship in which he engaged. It's a beautiful passage and it just speaks so wonderfully of how the creative God wants to bring about creativity in us. You see it in the examples in the book of Judges. You see a man there called Samson, upon whom is the Spirit of God to give him a kind of extraordinary strength. And you see the great fights that he's involved in, in which he, he um, commits violence in the name of God and in amazing ways. And it's because he is full of the Holy Spirit to bring about justice and to bring about, um, bring about peace for his people. You see this in the prophets who speak God's word. There are all these individuals who are full of God's spirit. And all of that Old Testament, which is the time before Christ, it comes to its pinnacle in the man Jesus. Who we learn about him in the book of Luke especially. We see the moment when he is full of the spirit because the Holy Spirit comes on him in the form of a dove when he's being baptized at the beginning of his ministry when he's age 30. And then immediately the spirit as he's full of the Spirit, drives him out into the wilderness where he experiences his, temp his temptation for 40 days and 40 nights there fasting in the wilderness. And then he goes and ministers in the power of the Spirit, going from place to place. And the extraordinary thing there is that the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who is the second person of the Trinity, nevertheless is living his human life in dependence upon the same Holy Spirit that you and I need in order to live a godly life. So as to show us how we are called to live. And Christ is therefore the ultimate pinnacle example and demonstration of the spirit-filled man. The person whose life is consumed and filled with and taken over by and controlled with the spirit of God. 
Now, if this is something that was a kind of a rare gift leading up to the time of Jesus, this is one of the great changes or transitions that takes place between that Old Testament era and the time of the church, the New Testament era. And here's how the Lord Jesus himself describes it. He said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John, who wrote the gospel, adds this comment. He said that this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So he's speaking about the time after Jesus would be crucified, raised from the dead, ascending to the Father's right hand, and from his place of rule and reign and authority at the Father's right hand, pour out his spirit on his church. And Jesus is saying, listen, this is what you need. You're going to drink deeply of my spirit. And then the spirit is going to flow out of you like rivers to change the world. To enable you to be the ministers and agents of change and transformation to bring grace to this world, the power of the gospel, the power of love and of good deeds and good works for the transformation of society. Drink deeply and let the Spirit gush through you in its life-giving, transforming power. And the promise of Jesus was that this would not just be unique individuals like the ones I was describing, but the Spirit will be poured out generally on all God's people, that any person who is a follower of Christ can drink deeply of the presence and power and the Spirit of the living God to empower them, to change them from the inside out, but then empower them to change the world. And so one of the things that we ought to conclude is that there is almost nothing more tragic than a person who is a Christian or a church that is Christian who isn't or that isn't enjoying the presence of God in his fullness. And that sadly many Christians have lived Christian lives in which they have not really experienced and dwelt in the presence of God and enjoyed his ongoing intimacy and infilling and empowering to live the Christian life. In fact, they've lived parched and dry and barren lives. And the tragedy of that is, is that you have a wealth available to you if only you knew how to access it. Think as an illustration of this, how for many millennia, in the desert regions of the Middle East, there have been communities and tribes and people groups who have, against all odds, managed to, um, managed to kind of eke out an existence in, in very barren places, struggling to supply enough food on the table, but surviving nonetheless. And in all that time, there was, of course, the almost unimaginable wealth beneath their feet in terms of the black gold and the oil that was always there, but without knowing how to access or make use of the stuff. And in a sense, that's an image of how 
Christians can live their lives or churches also can be barren places where the wealth and the joy and the experience of the intimacy and power of the living God in you, the Spirit of God in you and upon you, may be yours by right. But it may also be the case that you don't experience or enjoy him in in this way. And this is why Paul says to these Christians, he says, don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. There's a couple of things you've got to understand about this. The one is that grammatically, this language of being filled with the Spirit is not talking about a one-off event. It's an ongoing, present command. It means that you should go on being filled with God's presence and His power and His Spirit in your life. And I think that's extraordinarily important for us. Many of you who have given your lives to Jesus can look back on significant moments in your past when you've encountered God in special ways. I can think of many in my own life. And they may have changed the direction and trajectory of your life at certain points. Gatherings with other believers in which God spoke to you and touched your life. Moments of intimate prayer on your own when you felt his presence and he filled you. But in a sense, as wonderful and important and vital as that is, there is something very sad about a Christian who lives in the good of some historic experience of God indefinitely without ever enjoying the ongoing privilege of knowing his presence in your life even now. And that as Christians, you know, I've known many people over the years tell the wonderful stories of things God has done in the past, and we should never forget those things. They're, They're God's gift to us. But equally, we shouldn't neglect the present. The danger is we could become a little bit like one of those old rock stars who maybe had hits in the 1980s and now they're old men touring on the wonderful hits that they, that they released back then. Now still wearing the same tight leather trousers and, and with the same faded tattoos, just looking like sad versions of themselves 40 years ago. And you think that's how some Christians live their life. They, they remember back in the day the good things that God did. But, but what about now? What about today? What about here? So understand this. When he gives, he turns to the positive, he says, be filled with the Spirit. He's not talking about something that happens once. and He's not something, something that you can look back to as a significant moment in your life. He's saying, go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And something else I'll add here. Understand that this is a command. It's an imperative The reason why that matters is because it means that you have some measure of responsibility or agency. If you are a believer, if you're a follower of God, there is a call and a summons here for you to enjoy and experience God in ways that you haven't enjoyed or experienced Him before, to to pursue Him. Now, in calling you to this, we have to walk a careful line. That we never want to verge on the side of imagining that somehow we can control the work of God in our lives. The Holy Spirit is a sovereign person who does what he wants to do. And if you know anything about humanity, you know that whenever we encounter and experience power, we often want to manipulate and control and bottle it to, to, to further our own ends. And Christians have done this. 
many times over the years with regard to the work of the Holy Spirit. They tried to, to manufacture and to reproduce something in order to gain a better platform or to gain, gain more of a hearing. And so you see Christians advertising revival meetings as though revival is something we can control. Revival is a work, a sovereign work of God. When he alone moves, Jesus said the spirit blows where he wishes. He does as he pleases. He is God. We never want to imagine that there is anything we can do to manipulate or control or, or, um, or work up the power of God in, in our gatherings. That's not the way we want to think at all. But I do at the same time want to stress here that if there is anything to be obeyed in this, you be filled with the Spirit. If there's something in there that you must do, then surely it's that we're called to pursue, to ask for more of God. Yes, he's sovereign. And he moves in different people's lives in, in whatever way he chooses. Some in a very hidden and secret way. Some in extraordinary, invisible ways. He, he does as he pleases. It's beyond your control. But you as his child, you are called to seek him. I think this is the force of what Jesus says in Luke 11 when he's talking there about prayer. And he, he said that if, if our earthly fathers give good gifts to us, like food and so on, he says, how much more the heavenly father? And he said, won't the heavenly father so much more give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And I know of so many stories of individuals who have sought God, pursued God, and be changed by him in radical ways. I think it's worth also remembering what Paul said in Ephesians 4 when he called us not to grieve the Holy Spirit. That if you want to be a spirit-filled person, a believer in whom the presence of God is is, is, a, is a reality that you experience and enjoy, then understand this, that sin cannot be cherished. The Holy Spirit hates and despises our sin. And you're called to choose, aren't you? Choose God. Now, I want to bring this to a focus then as we begin to just finally explore we looked at the negative, don't get drunk on wine, and the positive, be filled with the Spirit. Now, finally, I just want you to think, what happens when you're full of the Spirit? And there are many things that Paul could have said here, many directions he could have gone, but what he's most interested in is the life of God in the community within the church. And what he's describing here in these verses, I want to put it to you, is a, a kind of God-intoxicated life. And there are a few marks of this God-intoxicated life. That if alcohol was the dark mirror, all of these marks are the holy version of what God wants to do in you. And here, here they are. The first one is that the Spirit can make you a passionate worshiper. Listen to what Paul says here. He says, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now, if 
alcohol is the dark mirror to this, and you all will instantly recognize the, the potency that alcohol can have to release people to sing. People who otherwise don't sing, can't sing, never sing with alcohol in the system, they may well begin to sing. And of course, you know, I know some people enjoy karaoke sober, but for most, it's, that's, it's impossible. You have to be slightly inebriated because alcohol is this potency to disinhibit you and to then release emotion, enable you to, to enjoy and to enjoy singing in particular, because singing is one of the most, um, most, m- most extraordinary ways that humans express joy. It's why, you know, typically men at, at, in large stadiums, having consumed too much lager, very often then sing tunelessly, um, raucously, but they sing nonetheless. And of course, it, you see them on Monday morning the next day in the office in a suit and tie, you will not believe it's the same person, but the alcohol does that. It disinhibits and then it releases and enables you to experience emotions in a way that maybe you aren't experiencing them in your normal day-to-day life. That's what it does. And in a sense, that's the dark mirror to what Paul's describing here of the spirit-filled person. The spirit disinhibits you in your passions and love for God and connects the head and the heart so that you feel the things you believe and believe the things you feel. And you see this, how this disinhibition that comes in a spirit-filled church as they begin to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, as he puts it. That there is this, this upwelling of desire to sing together, to sing, look each other in the face and sing raucously for God. Christians are noted for their singing. It's one of the most unique and extraordinary aspects of our religious practice, our worship, that we sing. Go to almost any Christian gathering anywhere in the world at any point in history and you'll discover people who have to sing. Partly because of this disinhibition, but also because of this this way that I'm I want you to understand the way in which the Holy Spirit, as he works in your life, he can bring about a change in which the things that you believe only intellectually suddenly begin to find emotional um, purchase in your heart. You, You feel them as well as think them. That you're not only going through the motions. You're not only obeying the things you feel you ought to obey. You're not only assenting to ideas that you feel you ought to believe, but they begin to take hold of you at the heart level, at the gut level, at the soul level. And I think this is one of the great marks of the work of the Spirit. It's what I think Paul is describing when he says that when the Spirit is in a person, the, the Holy Spirit witnesses with your spirit that you're a child of God. You cry out, Abba, Father. There's a sense of the joy, the emotion, the love, the affection of being God's child. I think it's what Jesus was describing in John chapter 4 as he dialogues with the woman at the well. And he said, the time is coming when God's, spirit, when God's people will worship in spirit and in truth. And he's contrasting it with everything that had gone before, how people could so often have dry, rote, traditional, religious, boring expressions of worship. And then suddenly when the Spirit is in us, we're alive to the things of God. We worship in spirit and in truth. There is a vigor and passion and liveliness to your faith. And this is what he's talking about here when he says, that we'll be addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. You're not just singing passively, brainlessly, or unwillingly. 
a mark of a spirit-filled person is this love for God that has to find expression in singing. I can point you to so many examples of this, but a few that jump to mind. One is that king in the Old Testament, David, a man who was full of God's spirit, who on one occasion, as he's overseeing the, trans, the, the journey of the Ark of the Covenant back to where it belongs among God's people, is so overcome with worship. And remember, the Ark of the Covenant is a box in which, which represented the manifest presence of God among his people, the, the felt presence of God among his people. That as the presence of God is being ushered in to its rightful place at the center of the community, David is dancing vigorously, and so vigorously, in fact, that he has to strip down to nothing but his linen ephod, in other words, his tighty whities And he's dancing so wildly and frenetically and passionately and with so much joy that his wife, who catches a glance of him from a distance through a window, sees him and begins to despise him. You know how you can be embarrassed of people who are near to you when you see them acting like, like fools? And she looks at him from a distance and thinks how he's just demeaned himself. And, but he doesn't care. And he says, I'll become more undignified than this. He doesn't care about his dignity because he loves God. And that seems to me to be a mark of the Spirit of God in a person. That dignity goes out the window because all that matters is passion and love and reality and authenticity. Back in the 1700s, I'll give you another example. The nation as a whole, and London in particular, was in the grip of a tragic decline in society. And the problem that was particularly afflicting society was the problem of alcohol. If you traveled around London, there were gin houses on every street, distilleries everywhere, producing copious amounts of this powerful spirit. And it was having a ravaging effect upon the population. And then a number of preachers began preaching in the open air and preaching about the need to come to God and experience His grace and be forgiven and be born again and be transformed by the power of God. There were men like a man called George Whitfield, another called John Wesley who founded the Methodist Church. And as they preached, thousands and then millions of people were coming to, to faith and their lives were turning around and being redeemed and rescued. And one of the marks of their, their newfound faith was its passion and its love for God expressed in singing. John Wesley's brother, Charles Wesley, composed more than 6,000 hymns. Now, there are some prolific singer-songwriters in our day and age, but I have never heard of anyone make it, write as many songs as that. 6,000 plus songs. Why? Because of this extraordinary, zealous passion that God awakes. Life isn't dull. Much less oppressed and suppressed in the way that alcohol dulls and takes off the sheen of your humanity. It's rather fully expressed. And so Paul's describing here this. It's something I could, I could tell you more stories in my own experience of this. He says the Spirit will make you a passionate worshiper. Something else he says here is that the Spirit will bring about the expression of happiness through thanksgiving. 
And here's how he, he, he expresses it. He says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the reason why I talk about that as the expression of happiness and thanksgiving is because thanksgiving and happiness or joy are basically inseparable. It is not really possible to be grateful and unhappy at the same time or to be happy without being grateful. The two things in its purest form, the kind of joy that's genuine joy and happiness is always marked by a well of thanksgiving and gratitude. And of course, again, this is something that's mirrored in the dark mirror of alcohol, that as a person drinks, there comes a window, doesn't there, before they tip off into whatever else happens later, where they can get a bit gushy and a bit emotional and a bit grateful and a bit loving Maybe a little too loving at times, or Grant, but you know, you be around someone who's under the influence, and suddenly there's this kind of this upwell of, of emotion and of gratitude, perhaps. And you know, this is the dark mirror to what Paul's describing here, which is the person who's full of the Spirit of God. And the Christian is therefore ultimately someone who dwells in this place of, of a fundamental baseline joy because. The most important thing about you is your posture of gratitude that God has done everything for you and you've done nothing to contribute to your status as a child of God. That's the Christian message. You didn't earn it. You certainly didn't deserve it. It was gifted to you as a gift of the grace of God because Jesus Christ lived the perfect life. He took your sin upon himself when he went to the cross and he has given you new life in him. And all you did was open your hands as a pauper or somebody in absolute poverty or bankruptcy and said, God, I have nothing to give to you. I received the goodness that you've given to me and therefore your whole life is an expression of gratitude to God that you are something and someone that you never deserve to be. And if gratitude and happiness are inseparable, it seems to me that as the Spirit fills a person and begins to awaken deeper and deeper experiences of joy and of gratitude, your happiness can only grow. And he talks about it as being a happiness in, and a thanksgiving in all circumstances because he says, always and for everything to God the Father. You think that sounds like an exaggeration, doesn't it? How can you be thankful always and for everything? But this is something that Paul himself had demonstrated. You see, you follow the journey of his life. There's one occasion when he's in a city called Philippi, when he's been preaching about Jesus, and then he, he gets beaten up by a mob and uh, bloodied and bruised and battered and happened to him on multiple occasions. But on this particular occasion, he then is thrown into prison for, for causing trouble. And there he is with his friend Silas in a prison cell, nursing their wounds and their bruises and their cuts. And what do you find him doing in that prison cell? You find him singing hymns to God. That's a spirit-filled man, friends. That is someone in whom the Spirit of God is at work because he is not crushed and oppressed by his circumstances because the God who is in him is, is bigger than the circumstances. And therefore, the joy doesn't stop. The happiness does not stop because he can always be grateful. Now, let me show you one small thing before I close. He also then talks about how the Spirit brings order to your life. He describes it like this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And the word submit 
literally means being ordered under. And it was used in the military that when a commanding officer had a number of troops under his command, those troops were ordered under his command. Now you have to understand this again against the backdrop of the dark mirror. What does alcohol do? It wrecks and distorts and disorders lives. It does that at the level of the individual, but it also does that in, in groups. It brings about chaos and violence and brawling. That's what it does. It brings about the kind of spirit of rebellion and disorder and, and resistance. But what Paul is describing here is how the Holy Spirit, when he comes into you, he brings order to your life. You feel like you're out of control. You feel like you don't know which way to turn. You don't know how to bring structure and direction to the life you're living. You feel that there's chaos. You feel like you're weak, unable, inadequate. You feel all these things. The Holy Spirit wants to come and gently bring the order that he's calling for. It begins with submission to God. A Christian is by definition someone who surrenders to the will of God. But that's actually not what he says here. He says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You fear Christ and therefore you allow your life to be submitted to the community, the church. Now there's much more that can and will be said on that in the weeks to come as we begin to explore what else is written in these chapters about the theme of this submission and it's going to be an interesting thing for us to explore. But I just want you to notice this that a mark of a spiritful person is this peaceful order. Your life is put back together. There's a humility. There's a gentleness. There's a demeanor of peace that allows you to relate to God's people in a new way. I want to ask you, friend, are you intoxicated with God? Is your life, if we looked at your life, would it be more characterized by the kind of disorder, the temporary pleasure-seeking, the escapism, the, the searching for solace that is characterized by the person who uses alcohol or whatever else it is that you may be drawn to? Is that you? Or are you marked by this pervasive happiness and joy, this passion and order that God alone can bring within you? Are you intoxicated with him? Are you filled with him? God wants better for you. He wants to come and put you back together. He wants to fix you. The language of salvation sounds so distant from us until you understand that the, the, that the word being saved just means to be made healthy again, to be, to be made whole, to be put back together again. And that, my friend, is what God does in the lives of those who follow him and believe in Jesus and are filled with his spirit. 